Having taken the month of April to consider how the New Testament develops the the theme of life and death that we find in the book of Genesis, we are now back again in the book of Genesis. And we return to the account of the early part of Abraham's life of faith. So turning your Bibles to Genesis 13. Genesis 13, it's page 11 if you're using the Red Pew Bible. Genesis 13, page 11. And since we've been away for a few weeks, let me remind you. You recall that Abraham, and at this point he's still known as Abram, he was a pagan living in Ur, worshiping false gods. Joshua says that explicitly, but even if he didn't, we can see it from the text of Genesis. After all, he lived among a pagan people. His wife Sarai and his sister-in-law Milcah, they were both named in honor of the uh, Mesopotamian goddess of the moon, the lunar goddess of Mesopotamia. This was a pagan family. And sometime around age 50-ish, the true God, Yahweh, creator of heaven and earth, he stepped into Abram's life and called him. And you'll recall that he called him to leave Ur, leave this pagan place in which you are currently living, but he also called him to leave his family, and that's going to be important for today's text. He was to go with his wife alone to Canaan, what we would today call Palestine. We saw that his obedience was less than perfect. He did leave Ur as commanded, but he only went as far as Haran, and he took with him his father and his nephew, Lot. He was not particularly obedient in that regard. Recall that at the end of chapter 11 of Genesis, as Moses was introducing to us Abram and Sarai and the people around them, he juxtaposed, that is Moses, juxtaposed the some interesting facts. He he made a point of telling us that Lot was an orphan. He immediately then described how Abram took care of him, and then he immediately tells us that Sarai, Abram's wife, is barren. She cannot have children. And the effect of those things being put right next to each other in the text was meant to point us to the fact that Abram was basically uh, expecting Lot to be the promised heir. Remember that God had promised him a seed, offspring, and being barren and having no legal biological children through his wife Sarai, he was functionally adopting Lot and taking him as his son. So in his mind, his disobedience when he left Ur and took his family with him, it was a justified disobedience. After all, this must be what God means by his way of fulfilling the promise to me. Therefore, Lot has to go along. We saw how Abram, when he was in Egypt, he fled Canaan because there was a famine in the land of Canaan, and he went to Egypt. And we saw how there, there was this perceived threat to his life on account of the beauty of his wife, Sarai. But instead of trusting Yahweh's promise, instead of believing that Yahweh was going to give him a biological son, he saw a threat to his life. And you recall that he hid from Pharaoh the fact that Sarai was his wife. And as a result, Pharaoh made Sarai his 
wife and violated her. And it was a tough time we saw in the life of Sarai. Uh, and he, and one of the things I love about that is the, the, the she comes to faith anyway. She becomes known as this paragon of faith throughout the rest of the scripture, despite the mistreatment she suffered at the hands of those who were Christians. This account of Abram and Sarai in Egypt will have lasting and serious consequences in their marriage. How could it not? But today our attention is not on them, but on him. In Egypt, Abram lacked faith in Yahweh's promise that he would be a father. So what happens when you fall flat in your faith? When you sin as Abram sinned, where do you go from there? Our God is a holy God. He detests sin and he detests distrust. In fact, our God is the thrice holy God. That is the Hebraic way of emphasizing something. They don't have ER and EST endings to make their point. So when the scriptures declare that our God is holy, 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 it is driving home the point that this is a principal characteristic of God. And so when you sin, when you fall flat, when you do something as vile and as outrageous as Abram did to his wife, what do you do? Can you go back to a holy God when you are that sinful? So we pick up the story of Abram in Genesis 13 today. Genesis 13, page 11 in the Pew Bible. This is the word of the Almighty. This is the word of that holy God. And it is the only infallible guide for life. It is the only way by which we might know what to do in the aftermath of our sin and shortcomings. So listen, believe, and obey. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev. Remember, that's the Judean wilderness, called that way in other places. Now, Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of Yahweh, that is, he worshipped. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. The size of their flocks and the strife between herdsmen undoubtedly points to disputes over water and pasture land. And that parenthetical phrase, that comment there about the Canaanites and the Perizzites drives that point home. They can't simply spread out in the land because the land is already occupied. It also hints at a danger. They are foreigners wandering around a foreign land. 
if they don't stick together, there's a danger from the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Verse 8, Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right, and if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. The younger Lot had at least three culturally appropriate responses, and I'm not going to tell you what they are yet. But given choices A, B, or C, he chose D, none of the above. And we read on in verse 10. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, also places that had rivers in them like Jordan Valley, in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Just setting it in history, the people in Moses' day had already heard the oral history of Sodom and Gomorrah. But now Moses is reminding them of when these things took place, what order they occurred in. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. The place to which Lot went is probably underwater today. Uh, there's a overwhelming evidence that the Dead Sea has been expanding for centuries, and the so ancient Sodom was believed to be on the shore of the Dead Sea, and since the Dead Sea is now bigger than it used to be, this place is probably now subsumed into the Dead Sea. Now, the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord the foreshadowing of things to come in Genesis. The Lord said to Abram, note now the timing of God's word to Abram. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, and note the tone of encouragement and comfort with which God speaks. Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, as we look at this text, we are perplexed as to why this account is here. So there was a squabble between an uncle and nephew. So what? Help us to understand why this is here. Help us to see what's going on so that we learn not mere facts, but rather we learn how you deal with sinful fallen people. And as you reveal yourself to us, move in our hearts that we would 
rejoice that we have a God such as you. We pray this for the sake of Christ and the glory of his name. Amen. Imagine for a moment that we took Genesis 13 and reduced it down to maybe two verses, depending on how you divide it up. Here's my proposed abridgment of Genesis 13. So Abram went up from Egypt, he, Sarai, his wife, and Lot. Now the flocks of Abram and Lot were large, and the land could not support both, so they parted. Lot settled in the Jordan Valley near Sodom because it was well watered. But Abram settled in Canaan near the Oaks of Mamre. I think for a lot of us, if that were the sum total of Genesis 13, little in our understanding would change. We wouldn't view the account of Abraham in Genesis very much differently. For we look at Genesis 13 and see in it just this mere story, some things that happened along the way. But I will remind you that's not how Moses writes. First of all, Writing back then was relatively difficult and expensive. Secondly, Moses was not inclined to just give detail for detail's sake. Consider all the things that are omitted. Mo, uh, uh, Abram spends somewhere around 25 years in Haran. We have not a word of what happened while he was there. Moses spends somewhere in the neighborhood of, 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 there's about 13 years between Genesis 16 and Genesis 17. Not a word of what's happening during those 13 years. Between the death of Sarah and the death of Abraham, 40 years transpire. There are two verses that sum up what happened in that time period. Moses is not inclined to give us detail for detail's sake. And so we have to ask again, what's the point? Why is this here? And until we can answer that, not can I come up with an inspired sermon from this text? No, 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 that's not the point. What did it mean? What does this, these events mean in the life of Abraham? For, and, and actually more technically, if I can refine that a bit, in our understanding of how God dealt with Abraham. That relationship is what matters here. So we have to ask ourselves, how does this show us God and his dealing with Abraham? And I would argue that it comes down to this. If we don't have Genesis 13, we lose the slow process of sanctification in Abraham's life. We'd lose the story of how God worked to sanctify the preeminent figure of faith in world history. If Genesis 13 were gone, we would know that Abraham was a man of great faith, an exemplar for and the father of all the faithful, but we wouldn't know how he got to be that way. And sometimes the road matters as much as the destination. You and I are walking our own roads of faith in Christ, and we might be tempted to compare ourselves to the finished product of Abraham. And in looking at finished Abraham, 
we might think, I don't have that kind of faith. I don't hope in God the way Abraham hoped in God. So do I hope enough? Am I saved even though I fall so far short of faith, faith's father figurehead? But in seeing Abraham's path of sanctification, we come to see a real man like us. A multi-dimensional man, a complex man of success and sin, faith and faults, triumph and tragedy. A man of disappointment, but also of delight. Most importantly, we see how God dealt with Abraham through all of that life, and we begin to recognize how God is working in our own lives. So let's consider closely the sinner saint portrayed in Genesis 13. And in so doing, let's come to understand the many roads God might take us down in our lives. So what do we want to see in this account of Abraham's life? I'm going to propose three R words give us some guidance. There is repentance. There is refailure. Yeah, I had to twist that one a little bit to make it work with the R. And there's reassurance. There is repentance, there is refailure, and there is reassurance. Let's look first at the repentance. Abram's sin in Egypt was severe. His newfound God, Yahweh, had promised him offspring, but he had no legal biological heir. In other words, if Abram died in Egypt, or so it was going in his mind, if Abram died in Egypt, his God was a liar. But Abram's new God is not a liar, so Abram had no legitimate reason to fear going to Egypt. Think about it. If God promised him an offspring, and he has no offspring, then he can't possibly die. And yet he goes into Egypt in distrust and fear. Now, the sin of distrusting is a grievous sin all by itself. But as is so often the case in life, when something goes wrong in our vertical relationship with God, it affects our horizontal relationships with one another. When Cain's worship was rejected, he then was at odds with his brother Abel. Our relationship with God affects our relationships with one another. And so the breach in Abram's trust in God leads to a breach in his marriage. Abram sinned in a most grievous and horrible way. And now for months, Abram and Sarai have been traveling back to Canaan, and their relationship could not be Worse, understandably, justifiably, Sarai has kept her distance, speaking to Abram no more than was necessary for the daily task at hand. She has readily accepted her place at one end of the caravan while he rides at the other end as far away as possible. And we can only imagine what life was like in the tent each evening. In fact, the next time Sarai appears in the story, is when she is giving Abram Hagar her servant. That's a suggestive fact. 
So for months, Abram has been forced to contemplate his sin in Egypt. And as they've walked along, he's been wondering how to get back to life the way it was before. Abram wants to go back to a time when sin had not shredded his marriage. And Moses shows us what Abram did. Disappointed with himself, Abram goes back to God. Look at verses 3 and 4 of our text. Chapter 13, verses 3 and 4. And he journeyed on from the Negeb as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning. Between Bethel and I to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of Yahweh. At the beginning, at the first. Like a restore point on a computer operating system, Abram is going back to where things were all good. And his return is not merely geographical, but spiritual. I met God at this place, and I need to meet God again. And he's not traveling there merely for reasons of nostalgia. Remember, Abram doesn't have a Bible. When he needs a word from God, he cannot just open a book and read God's word. And we always think that the people in Bible times had it better, you know, because they got to speak to God directly. But we forget the privilege we have, that we have God's word any time we need it. They did not. Abram cannot turn to the word of God to hear God speak to him. And so he goes back to the one place that he knows God has spoken to him. He returns to Bethel. Bethel means literally God's house. And that's why there are so many churches that have Bethel in their name. And if for any, for any reason we ever had to change our name, Bethel is a good nomination right there. It's a good name for a church. God's house. Abram's return to the place and his resumption of worship at that altar suggests a desire for, a desire in him to return to faithfulness. I don't like who I was and what I did in Egypt. And I want to go back to what I was like that day God spoke to me at Bethel. That, my brothers and sisters, is repentance. To turn away from one's sin and to turn to God is the very definition of repentance. I mean, that is text book repentance right there. I don't like who I am. I don't like what I've done. I need God. Abram, having spent months in the caravan contemplating his sin, repents and returns to God. You know, the pillars and the exemplars of the faith, those Old Testament heroes which dominate the landscape of Scripture, men like uh, uh, Elijah, David, Moses, Abraham, these guys weren't saints in one sense of that word. They are not men of noble character or righteous disposition. Elijah, David, Moses, uh, 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 Abraham, the Mount Rushmore of Old Testament Christianity, these guys were messed up. Elijah's the bold prophet 
who challenges the prophets of Baal in this beautiful demonstration on top of Mount Carmel. And the next place we find him is whining and hiding in a cave, complaining about his situation, blowing it out of all proportion to God's ear. So much for his boldness. Moses, he was a hot-headed guy. He's the guy that killed the Egyptian. He's the guy that slammed the Ten Commandments on the ground and broke them. He's the guy that struck the rock when he was supposed to talk to it. I was laughing at myself as I was preparing this, thinking to myself, in today's world, Moses would be the guy that would spend a lot of time in human resources taking anger management classes only to be fired anyway. He is a hothead. David's sins are legendary. Murder, adultery, failing to obey the ban on a census. He's a terrible father. He's a polygamist. He's a bad, bad guy. And now we are starting to see that Abraham's got that same problem. He has disobeyed God repeatedly, and then he distrusted God in Egypt. But what makes these men the paragons of faith that they are? Why are these bad guys held up as examples to be followed? Let's briefly look at David before we come back to Abram. David was constantly sinning, as we've already outlined. And yet what we see in David is that he's constantly running back to Yahweh, his God. David never hopes in Baal or in Moloch or in Asherah. David's hope is never that he can fix himself. David never thinks that mindful mindfulness, mindlessness will put him in peace. David doesn't try to Christianize yoga or psychology. His hope always is that God will take him back. Centuries before Jesus would tell the twelve to forgive 70 times 7, David is putting that number to the test. He runs back to God after every sin. That's why he's described as a man after God's own heart. After it, chasing it, pursuing it, needing it, wanting it. And that's the faith we see are, we are seeing develop in Abraham. Just as David says in Psalm 51 against you and you only have I sinned, O Lord. So Abram is not trying to patch things up with Sarai first, but rather trying to patch things up with God. Abram understands that Yahweh will take him back. It's not a question of getting fixed up and then going to God. It's a question of going to God to get all fixed up. In this God, Abram has discovered not a capricious or arbitrary God who may or may not welcome him back. Abram has found a God who will always take him back. And so he repents and returns to God. Do not fade away from the worship of that God, this worship right here, corporate, biblical, Christ-centered worship, 
Do not fade away from worshiping God because you've sinned. Yeah, I can't go to church. I'm hungover from last night's party. <laughs> I can't go to church. I'd first have to sneak home and get a change of clothes. I can't go to church because I'm a hypocrite in so many ways. What we see in the biblical exemplars of faith are men who run back to God after every failure. Believing in his grace, his goodness, his mercy, his love, they believe those things about God because they know God. And how do they come to know him? By going to church, by hearing his word, by worshiping, by praying, by seeking him. The first lesson of Abraham's sanctification is the lesson of repentance. If I may say it more memorably, or at least I hope it's more memorable, the lesson is that of re-repentance. Repenting again and again and again. There is that line that is said to smokers, you know, don't quit quitting until you quit. The same can be said to sinners. And then we tack on this. You're not going to be able to quit until you're in glory. So you got to keep running to Jesus. You got to keep going back for more of that same forgiveness, more of that same grace, more of that same mercy, more of that same God. Don't quit repenting because you keep failing. You will keep failing for as long as you're in this life. Re-repentance is what we see here in the life of Abraham. It's one of the reasons we have Genesis 13. For without it, we would think that he jumped right from, from pagan to paragon. He did not. And then Abram turned right around and re-failed. Re-failure is the second thing we see. I asked why Genesis 13 was as detailed as it is, and I think this is the main reason right here. Abram's re-failure. In my proposed two-verse abridgment of this chapter, we would miss how Abram failed again to trust God and how God again took him back. And again, we might be tempted to judge ourselves against the seemingly perfect final product version of Abraham and think that God has no patience for a failure like me. But God is the very definition of patient. Nobody is as patient as God. And the story of Abram, at least in Genesis 13, is not a story about a proficient saint, but about a patient God. Let me show you this. So following verse 9, I commented that the younger Lot had three culturally appropriate responses to, to Abram's suggestion that they part ways. Let me now lay these out for you, because I think they help explain what we find at the end of this chapter. First, Lot could have agreed to the need to separate, but refused to take the first choice. Uncle, you're right. You're wise. We need to part ways. I see the wisdom of parting, but it's not my place as the younger man to choose. You're, adopt you're my adopted father. The honor belongs to you. You pick. Moreover, your God promised you this land. You pick, and I will take whichever you don't. That would have been an appropriate response from the younger Lot. Another acceptable answer 
would have been for him to look at the, the two directions and to pick the one that appeared less desirable. That way is green. That way is brown. In honor to Abram, I'll let him have the green and I will choose the brown. But that's not what he did either. Finally, he could have, and I would argue probably should have responded this way, Uncle Abram, we're family. You've become my father. I have become your son. We need to stick together. Moreover, we're safer together in this foreign land as wanderers, as nomads. Let's figure it out. We can work out the details, but we must stay together. That would have been the wise response. That would have been the the best answer from Lot, and it is for sure the answer Abram wanted to hear. Abram took Lot under his wing when Lot's father died. Abram had been looking out for this young man ever since, and Abram had no child of his own. It's hard to imagine that Abram really wanted Lot to leave. And the sequence of events that follow in Moses' account bear this out. So after some details about Lot's departure and the nature of the place to where he was going, look at verse 14. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot separated from him, lift up your eyes. First off, we know that Lot had separated from Abram, so why does Moses write that and emphasize it? Well, it's because the timing here matters. The timing of God's word coming to Abram is important. Secondly, the whole tone and tenor of what God says to Abram is comforting and encouraging. Why? Well, why do you comfort or encourage someone? Because they're down. They're depressed. They're sad. They're discouraged. They're disappointed. God's tone reflects Abram's mood. Abram didn't want Lot to leave. He's disappointed with the younger man's response. Abram's sad. And that's why God comes the way he does. More about God's response in a moment, but for now, let's look more closely at why Abram is in need of reassurance and comfort. I alluded to this earlier. Flip back in your Bibles now to the close of Genesis 11. Go back a page or two, maybe like mine, it's on the same page. Go back a page or two to Genesis chapter 11. We're going to pick up in verse 27. Now, these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Now, families were generally very large back then, and it's likely that both Nahor and Haran had many, many children. So we have to ask ourselves, why is Lot mentioned? Why single him out? You're going to say, well, you know, it's because he plays a a, a prominent role in the rest of the book of Genesis. But I'm going to ask you why. If Genesis is principally, and it is principally about how God brings about Israel and through Israel, how he brings about the Messiah, Lot doesn't really factor directly into that. And in fact, the last time we'll see Lot is as the father of disgraced peoples, uh, the uh, the uh, Moabites and the Ammonites. 
And as such, he ought to get just that footnote comment that other fathers of disgraced peoples get in the book of Genesis. So why does Lot figure so prominently? It's because of the role he plays in Abraham's life. It's Abraham and his relationship to Lot that matter. Picking up in verse 28. Haran, that's Lot's father, died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. So now the first thing we learn about Lot is that he is fatherless. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The, the name of Abram's wife was Sarai, the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. And so we have these two kinsmen, Lot and Abram. One is fatherless and one is childless. Hmm. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, and they went forth together from Ur. Abram's new god, the heretofore unknown Yahweh, has commanded Abram, as we would find out in chapter 12, to leave Ur and his family, to go possess a land, and to have offspring. And yet Lot goes along. Why? Because in Abram's mind, as we've already said, this is how it's going to happen. He said, I'll have seed. I have no children through my legal wife, Sarai. I need a legal heir. And it's going to be Lot. And I'll remind you that once Lot's out of the picture, what's the next time we have any mention of Abram and his offspring, his heir? It's Eliezer of Damascus. Abram thinks this way. He thinks that he can have an adopted uh, 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 heir. And when God says, no, it will not be Eliezer of Damascus, then what does he do? He has a child through Hagar, the servant. He keeps trying to substitute an heir other than the one God had intended. Lot is in his mind the fulfillment of the promise. And Lot walks away. That's why Abram needs encouragement and comfort from God. That's why this is here. Because it is again a picture of Abram's failure. He failed to trust God to solve things God's way in Egypt. And now they're back in the land and he's still failing to trust God. He's repented at the beginning of chapter 13 and he falls right back into the same sin again. He's not letting God be God. He's trying to figure out how to make these things happen for God. And it keeps leading to problems. Falling back into the, our old pattern of sin is precisely the struggle we all have. This is what Paul is talking about in Romans 7. I can't figure out this Christian life. I can't do the things I know I'm supposed to do and I really want to do. And I keep doing the things that I don't want to do that I know are wrong. Who can rescue me from this body of sin? Praise be to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
That's where the rescue's found. That's where you got to keep going back every time you stumble and fall. And that's what we're seeing here with Abram. We're seeing the process of sanctification. This great man of faith was not born a great man of faith. He fell over and over and over again. And what we have here is him coming out of Egypt, a place where he didn't trust God, repenting of that sin, and walking right into a new pattern of not trusting God. And what happens? At what point is God going to get fed up? I've given you multiple chances, Abram. You didn't leave Ur like you were told to on your own. You brought family with you. Strike one. You went to Egypt and you didn't believe that I would take care of you and you tried to solve it yourself. Strike two. And now here you are expecting Lot to be your offspring and you're disappointed because he's walked away. Strike three, you're out. Part of the beauty of this is not what Abram does next, but what God does next. What was our third R word? What did we see as the other thing in the text? Reassurance. Abram has repented, but he has refailed. And now we see reassurance. How does God treat the refailure of the once repentant Abram? He doesn't kick him to the curb. He doesn't say three strikes and you're out. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, for sure the God of Jacob, the God of David, the God of Moses, the God of Elijah, reassures the fallen and the broken. Sometimes it has the edge of tough love, like with Elijah. Sometimes it's tremendous gentleness, like it is here. And what do we see happening? God forgiving and restoring over and over again. Lift up your eyes, verse 14. Lift up your eyes. That is always an expression of hope. I will lift my eyes to the hills from whence cometh my hope. Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are. Stop focusing on where you are now. And remember the promise. Northward and southward and eastward and westward for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. The promise, which back in Ur was merely a a vague, nebulous, uh, uh, abstract promise, is now concrete. Abram's standing in the land. He's walked the land. He's eaten from this land. He's slept on this land. He's worshipped in this land. Though his life has been difficult, the promise of God is becoming more and more real to him. From a place, from a land where God said, go to the land that I will show you to lift up your face and look at the land that I am showing you. 
Verse 15, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. You're worried about Lot walking away. Don't worry about it. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one could count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. You're worried about one offspring. I'm going to give you countless offspring. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. Abram sinned in Egypt, but he repented and he returned to God's house, house to Bethel, to worship God. Abram re-failed, sinning again by misunderstanding God's word, pinning his hopes on Lot. One way to think about that, especially for us Presbyterians who we really get really proud of our doctrine, Abram's doctrine was fouled up. His understanding of God and who God was and how God worked was wrong. And yet he is saved anyway. Our doctrine does not save us. Our God saves us. He repented, he refailed, but God offered reassurance and restated the promise and restated the hope to the downtrodden and saddened Abram. In close, think about Paul's words in Romans 14, where Paul says these beautiful things. It is before his own master that a servant stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. When you sin, repent, and then repent again, and then re-repent, and then re-repent. Don't quit quitting until you quit, and that'll only be in glory. And when you refail, be reassured. Hear the promise of eternal life anew. It is before your own master that you stand or fall. And you will be upheld. For the Lord is able to make you stand. Lord, we cannot stand on our own. We can't even walk the shortest distance in this life without falling into sin, without being tripped up by our mistakes and our misunderstanding of who you are and how you work. We cannot execute the life of faith the way we need to. So thank you for Genesis 13. Thank you for the word of encouragement we find here. Thank you for the reminder to us that Abram was not in and of himself a great man of faith. He was an ordinary man like us, whom you sanctified, whom you took through the trials and difficulties of this life, whom you brought to the place that you wanted him through the process of your divine sovereignty. Let us rest in that knowledge. Let us be encouraged and hopeful in that knowledge. Let us go forth in the confidence of that knowledge. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.